I think the most important question that we haven't asked yet is, did they have dinosaurs? Oh, man. Spoiler alert. (laughs) He was um, actually one of the first archaeologists that dug up a real-life Brachiosaurus. Um, And then it turned out that it was just like a tiny dog. He was wrong. You're going to confuse so many people. Yeah, that's not true. Oh, I was like, wait, is that true? (laughs) It's all about the confidence in what you say (laughs) to make people believe it, though. He was not an archaeologist that I know of, and he did not find a large, small dog breed brachiosaurus. A large, small dog. But he could have been. He possibly could have been, you know? I don't... Time to learn. Time to laugh. It's the death address. Welcome back to another episode of the Death Address. Today we'll be talking about Aeschylus, a Greek tragedian. And I was the one that actually went ahead and did the research today, so I will be leading the charge and talking about it. Now, what's a tragedian? That was my question. <laughs> what exactly is a tragedian? tragedian i was gonna get into it if you guys would let me do my little spiel first all right yeah he's he's so damn like an evil clown (laughs) for real like (laughs) so um anyways we'll jump into a couple of just quick notes about him before i go into his early life um he was a greek playwright and one of the first european dramatists whose plays were preserved he was also the first of the three great greek tragedians which are writers of serious dramas involving disastrous events. So there's your answer. That's what tragedy ends are. Hot. You guys had to wait two minutes tops. I know. The suspense killed me, and I already knew. I'm not satisfied with that answer. I'm not satisfied. Let's work this back again. Uh, we're, this we need over. to come up with a new definition because <laughs> that is trash. So um, the main thing... Not the main thing, but one of the things that stood out between him and the other three or the other two great Greek tragedians uh, is that he was concerned with the common connection between man and the gods more than any of the others and kind of put it into his playwrights, um, too. So moving ahead and jumping into his early life, there are a few uh, reliable sources that I was able to find on Aeschylus. He was said to have been born about 525 or 524 BCE in Eleusis, which is a small town just northwest of Athens. And yes, that is Eleusis. Eleusis. So it would be like a suburb of Denver, basically. Yeah, I don't. Uh, yeah, I guess. He was in like the Fort Collins to Denver, huh? It's small town though, so I feel like small town back then was like actually a small town like it was only like 50 people yeah Yeah. how many people would you say only like 50 people yeah something like that i said 10 (laughs) 10 to they smoke hella weed there though (laughs) it really Um, was a horse town you know i didn't look up the drug use and alcoholism back in that time since i was just kind of focusing on him but my assumption is yeah they probably smoked hella weed that makes sense Okay, so moving back into Aeschylus's actual life. His father was Euphorion, which was, um, he was a, mel- a, wel- a wealthy man, a wealthy man. He was a wealthy man of the upper class, and uh, his family was obviously well established. His father, this is interesting, was a member of the Eupatridae, Eupatridae, 
the ancient nobility of Attica, which literally meant good fathered or offspring of noble fathers or the well-born. Um, so it, it was kind of said to be believed that that's what his dad was a member of. Um, and his dad was into some some weird stuff. We kind of get into it later. He was kind of part of this like weird cult from their city. So, um, so that's yeah. why his name was Euphoria. Um, <laughs> pretty much. He kind of was like, that sounds weird. So I'm going to add the O-N and be Euphorion. Kind of like a Greek Charles Manson follower. He uh, he has an evil twin brother named Euphorioff. <laughs> that's so bad. <laughs> I, I tried. I tried. Um, that's also not true. <laughs> it's like Waluigi. <laughs> All right. So Aeschylus had at least two brothers that uh, we know of, Cynegyrus and Amenia. Their education pretty much included the writings of Homer, who was a Greek poet that lived during the 800s BCE and wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. Yeah, everybody knows Homer Simpson. Exactly. It was actually Homer who proved most inspiring to Aeschylus when he began to write as a teen. So again, there wasn't a lot in his early life. Um, This is kind of the next part that I found that kind of moved him into his adult life. But as a youth, he worked at a vineyard and according to... Vineyard, vineyard. Definitely a vineyard. There's the E. He he worked on a vineyard Wait, pulling no. vines. Yeah, I'm like, is a vineyard something else? Like a it's, yard where you there's you fuck with vines? I know it's vineyard. Okay, I'm just being a, an ass because I don't want to be wrong. It's vineyard. Okay. And uh, he, he worked to, on a farm pulling vines. <laughs> He was the vine puller dude at a vineyard, okay? Hey, that shit was important, man. <laughs> if he didn't pull the vines, they would get into the vineyard. <laughs> All right, so according to tradition, as is tradition, the god Dionysus visited him in his sleep and commanded him to turn his attention to the art of tragedy. So Aeschylus woke up the next morning and started to write his first play. Because, you know, why not? Tradition happened. It finally happened. <laughs> Dude, if a god tells you what to do, you do it. In, in your sleep. Uh, yeah. But he well, told him to be an, an emo. <laughs> he what, Andy? He told him to be an emo, though. No, write emo <laughs> stuff. Not to be an yeah. emo, but just to oh, write emo to shit. To the profit of the tragedy. So he's not, like, he's not like the people emo. that follow Panic at the Disco. Those are emos. He is okay. Panic at the Disco. Okay, all right, dope. (laughs) All right, dope. (laughs) All right, sick, I love it. Okay, so, um, yeah, he, um, so that's basically, like, the extent of his early life and youth that I was able to find. There wasn't too much else about it, so he pretty much woke up and, like, boom, started writing his first play and became an adult, you know? (laughs) (laughs) That's how that happens. That's, really. that's how it happens. I've, I've watched anime. So okay. Just some rapid aging. Music you know. music started playing. He had a little montage happen, and like the sun went down a bunch of times, came back up, and then all of a sudden he had facial hair and was like, my first play. He's like, uh, we're going to need a montage. Montage. Um, so anyways, his first play was performed when he was only 26 year, years, when he was only 26 years old. Um, and I found two different sources on that saying it was either in 484 or 499. I, yeah, so the two different sources for 484 and 499 BCE, um, I think it was 499 kind of seemed more intact with everything else that I found. 
But anyways, 15 years later, he won his first prize at Athens' annual Dionysa Playwright competition. I made that sound like a question. <laughs> there was bunches of wine there, I'm sure. There was a question mark on the computer. <laughs> yeah, I read anything that's put in front of me. Uh, but yeah, so yeah, he won his first prize at Athens' annual Dionysa Playwriting competition. And that kind of started it all off for him. He ended up, uh, I think I have it later, but yeah, I think he won a total of 13 competitions in his life, which is pretty extravagant for how long they are and the time that they take place. And the fact that a lifespan was like 20 years in ancient Greece. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, especially his unfortunate, but we'll get, we'll get into that later. It's, it's, it's spoilers. It's an unfortunate death for sure, but it's, it's kind of laughable and funny and I don't want to be an ass about it, but yeah, it's, it's funny. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, Aeschylus's writings were strongly Athenian and rich with moral authority. He carried home the first place award from the Athenian competition 13 times, like I had just said. Uh, the Persian Wars played a very large role in Aeschylus's life and career. In 490 BC, he and his brother uh, Synagyrus fought to defend Athens against the invading army of Darius I of Persia at the Battle of Marathon. It was actually come to known a pretty famous victory that was against overwhelming odds, but the Athenians emerged triumphantly and uh, it was celebrated across the city gates of Greece. But he was no Leonidas. No, um, but apparently he was a pretty, pretty decently badass and held his own in those battles from what I was able to establish and see. But yeah, he, um, he wasn't just a, a writer. He was a fighter, too. He was like, oh, the pen is just as mighty as the sword. Yeah, that saying. Is that is that where that came from? Well, it's the pen is mightier than the sword, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> is the yeah, actual maybe thing. <laughs> maybe that's what he decided after he was like fighting and stuff. But um, unfortunately for his brother, he didn't get to celebrate. Synagyrus was killed while trying to prevent a Persian ship from retreating from the shore. Um, oh, poor little fella. It was it was heroic actions, according to his countrymen, and they called him a hero from then on, even though, you know, he was dead, but he was celebrated as a hero. Hooray! Aeschylus went on to continue to write plays, although he was called into military service again against the Persians in 480 BCE. This time it was against... Th- it was against Xerxes invading forces at the Battle of <laughs> Salamis, which was that the one that you talked about a little bit too, Ray? Yeah. That's what I thought when I was reading it. I was like, ooh, that's actually cool because we had talked about the Battle of Salamis when you did Artemisia. Yeah, Artemisia. She was like, that was the um, battle where they the Athenian ships were like chasing her ship down and she just turned around and fucking rammed them and sank their <laughs> ship. <laughs> that's awesome. So that's really cool because this naval battle actually holds a prominent place in his play The Persians, which is his oldest surviving play. And it was performed in 472 BCE and won first prize at the Dionysia. Um, we'll get into it a little bit later when I get into the plays, but that's that actually is really cool that that worked out that way because I had picked him without even knowing that. And then, yeah, that's awesome because that's his, cool. His, it's like its own yeah. little interconnected universe, right? I told you they're all connected the in the Death Address universe. universe. <laughs> <laughs> so Aeschylus was uh, one of many Greeks who was initiated. So this is what I was kind of talking about a little bit with his dad, going that he was in some weird stuff, and it like kind of led down to him being part of it too. But he was uh, one of the many. Oh my goodness, Onyx! No, you're gonna have to wait. As I was saying, Aeschylus was one of the many Greeks who was initiated into what was called the Eleus- El- Eleususian 
Nope. Eleusinian Mysteries, which was an ancient cult of Demeter based in his hometown of Eleusis. Is it Demeter? I thought it was Demeter. It's no, Demeter. they're called Dementors. They like help or they keep Harry Potter at Hogwarts. Yeah, the Dementors. I know about that. I, did, I was like, I'm going to get all the pronunciations on these ones. And I like, there was a couple that I was like, oh, I know how to get it. So, okay. Demeter. It's, it's Demeter. Demeter. Yeah. Okay. Well, it was an ancient cult of Demeter based in his hometown of Eleusis, which it didn't really go into much about that um, except for. Initiates gain secret knowledge through those rites, likely concerning the afterlife. And firm details of most of the rites are very scarce, as members were sworn under the penalty of death not to reveal anything about the mysteries to anybody that wasn't a member. So, like, yeah, it was like some serious, serious stuff back then for sure. I mean, even today, I guess as well. <laughs> um, according to Aristotle, Aeschylus was accused of asabia which is the desecration and mockery of divine objects. And it was for revealing some of the cult's secrets on stage. Other sources claim that an angry mob tried to kill Aeschylus on the spot, but he fled the scene. So it was kind of like some, some crazy stuff that went down right there. Heracleides of Pontus, or Pontus, asserts that the audience tried to stone Aeschylus, but he took refuge at the altar in the orchestra of the Theater of Dionysia. At his trial, he pleaded ignorance and was acquitted. The jury was sympathetic to the military service of him and his brothers during the Persian Wars. Um, this was kind of funny, but according to second century AD author Elian, Aeschylus' younger brother, Amania, helped to acquit him by showing the jury the stump of the hand he had lost at Salamis, where he was also voted bravest warrior. But the truth is that the award for bravery at Salamis went not to Aeschylus' brother, but to Amania of Paline, which happened to just have the same name as his brother, but they apparently believed him. I, I don't know. <laughs> you don't know enough about this. This is what happened. Yeah. They're like, they're like oh, his name's Amania. There's the stump. I guess he's the one that was the, the bravery dude. I guess you're free to go. And everybody there just had no idea who the real person was, I guess. I, I don't know. <laughs> awkward like i guess they didn't they didn't have pictures to hold up of anybody or anything but ignorance worked both ways there pretty much so aeschylus would uh, go on to get married i couldn't find the name of the person he married i actually i just probably spent like 20 minutes trying to find it and i couldn't find anything so that was good enough for me <laughs> I can't find her name, but I did find his sons, which um, he named his son Euphorion, which obviously was after his dad. And then Euion, both of uh, them did end up becoming tragic poets as they got older. Like father, like son? Euphorion would go on to win first, first prize in 431 BC in a competition against both Sophocles, Sophocles. Oh my God, why am I struggling against that? In a competition against both Sophocles and Euripides. Euripides. <laughs> Euripides. Euripides. So he won been against a softy, huh? Yep. Sophocles. A Sophocles. His shit was just too soft. Esophagus. He also had what a, was the, what was the other guy's name? I don't know, but Sophocles also had an evil twin brother named Hardocles. <laughs> oh, good. <Watch laughs> the other guy's the other guy is uh, Euripides. Euripides. So yeah. And then uh, a nephew of Aeschylus, Philocles, his sister's son, which apparently had a sister that I didn't know about until this part. There was nothing else I could find on her. Um, he was also a tragic poet and won first prize in, co uh, in the comp 
in the competition against Sophocles and against Sophocles is Oedipus Rex. Is it Oedipus? Oedipus Rex. Rex. Why is there an O it's there? Oedipus. Oedipus. It's Oedipus. <laughs> Holy shit! There really were dinosaurs. I'm like what, what? What? What kind of sick person puts a silent O at the beginning of a word? Ask his parents. <laughs> Again, Sophocles is Oedipus Rex. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Oedipus. Oedipus Rex there. All right, I'll say it the right way. All right, so moving along from his kind of early life about his stuff that nobody wants to know about, we're going to move to his cool stuff. He was an innovative playwright. According to Aristotle, Aeschylus was responsible for adding a second actor for minor parts, which, you know, doesn't sound that big, but it was huge. Huge. It used to be a one-man show. That was it. <laughs> Dude, for real, though, it was a one-man show with a chorus, and that was what it was until he changed it. That is pretty revolutionary when you think about it. That's what I'm saying. Like, It doesn't sound that crazy at all now, but like... If like, you could look... you imagine watching the Avengers and literally Robert Downey <laughs> Jr. is playing all of them? It's... That would be hilarious. And, uh, now, you're, now you're going back to what was, who was the guy that Tropic did Thunder. It? He's the dude disguised <laughs> as a dude playing the other dude. I was thinking of the Nutty <laughs> Professor when he first did it, where he was like all Eddie Murphy, movie. where he plays like him. <laughs> yeah. There's yeah. some big mama's house. Yeah, no, 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 no. That still would technically be like this was, it was literally like one dude on stage going through everything and he would pretty much interact with the chorus and nothing else. So it wasn't even that's what I'm multiple, saying, man. like characters or multiple parts. It was literally just one dude. Like, like how would you one do man a sex show? scene? <laughs> That'd yeah, be interesting. How does one person have sex? Eh? It's, it's <laughs> kind of like when you turn around and like hug yourself and make it look like you're like you know making out with someone. <laughs> this guy's great. Just wait until he gets to the sex scene. <laughs> this definitely seems like something we should spend a lot of detail. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, moving along. Um, <laughs> so basically, he included more dialogue into his plays that squeezed more drama from the age-old stories that were already so familiar to his audiences and kind of like added that different variety and everything to them. But he is also credited as the first to use the Echiclima. It's a wheeled platform used to change stage scenery, which, you know, kind of cool. And then also the first to use the machine, which was a crane device that used was used to lift actors. the machine. Like it just almost sounds like you're pronouncing machine wrong. So it's like a it's a man it's a man crane. Um it's 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 actually it's different from machine. It's M E C H A N E and I did look it up and it's machine. Um but yeah, crane device used to lift actors, which I'm pretty sure they use to this day when they do like fight scenes and all kinds of crazy stuff with the actors <laughs> flying around. So Definitely some crouching tiger, hidden dragon. Yeah, so it was it was cool doing this guy because it started off as being like, oh man, this dude had a f- like a really funny death, and then researching him, you're like, oh, this guy's actually like, he contributed a shitload. This guy, yeah, actually contributed a good amount to. He not like, only, like made yeah. he like made the supporting actor and special effects, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, he was, uh, also noted for his extravagant costume designs and use of striking imagery. Um, so he kind of added that as well, which he wasn't necessarily the one that brought that into it. He he was like, I I think they said it was mixed with him and Sophocles about the people that did it, but he used it a lot. So it's like him and the other guy, but plays back then were submitted for competition in groups of four, which were three tragedies and a satire play. Escalese often carried on a theme between his plays, creating sequels that followed several generations of a single family. 
Yeah. And uh, that trilogy model would later be copied by other playwrights and helped earn Aeschylus's reputation as the founder of Greek tragedy that we know today, which I now know today. I didn't know that before doing this. <laughs> that we all definitely knew before <laughs> this. It's crazy, though, yeah, like, when you think about it. So, like, basically, he paved the way for, like, Shakespeare, you know? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, it was really cool doing it and learning about how much he actually contributed to that. Because, yeah. I mean, as far as that, too, it affected a society a ton with how big playwright and all that was back then, you know? Absolutely. So, jumping into his plays, kind of... Um, Modern scholarships have shown that the first of Aeschylus's plays was the Persians, so the one that we were talking about for the Battle of Salamis. Um, it is also the only play on a historical subject that has survived in Greek drama. And the other interesting thing about it is that the play is seen from a Persian point of view. So knowing a little bit about it with that whole war and um, battle and everything for Salamis and the naval, like that'd be a, like a really kick-ass play to see for like a Persian point of view and everything that happened, you know, especially back then. You got to show it from the villain's side, right? Which, hey, in every in every villain's story, they're the hero. His theme sought to show how a nation could suffer due to its pride, and of his ninety plays, only seven are still preserved. Aeschylus's masterpiece is the Aristia, and it's the only preserved trilogy from Greek drama. It's a trilogy, so the three plays involved are Agamemnon, the Choephori also known as the Libation Bearers, and the Eumenides, a.k.a. the Furies. So those are the, the three that make up it. And there was a satire that went along with it, but it didn't survive. I think the name comes out a little bit later. You're just Agamemnoning me, aren't you? You're just Agamemnoning me. Yes, yeah, so dude, Agamemnon, man. Like, So basically, the, the, they form separate dramas, but they also are united in their common theme of justice. So for the first one, this is the only one I really found like a, a like a big explanation on as far as the justice stuff goes. But it was just an example is King Agamemnon returns to his home after the Trojan War only to be murdered by his scheming wife, Clytemnestra. Oh, God, I didn't look this one up. I missed this one. Clytem- Clytemnestra. Clytemnestra. You see that one? Cly- Clytemnestra. Mm-hmm. And her lover, so he got murdered by his wife and her lover, that name. which didn't say if it was a man or a woman. So you know, but mm-hmm. it was probably a dude. Hot. The king's children um, went out and sought revenge, that ultimately led to their trial by the gods. And the theme of evil, compounding evil, is powerfully written in that one. So that was kind of the theme of his his trilogy with those three in that one. But yeah, yeah, that was uh, King Agamemnon, man. I didn't know that about him, but yeah, he was murdered by his scheming wife and her lover. Yeah, yeah I had no so. idea about that. That's crazy, dude. You like just get done with this massive war <laughs> over this princess, and then you fucking come home and your wife Honey, stabs you in the back. <laughs> I mean, that's what happens when you yeah. go to war for another woman, I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that'll happen. That will happen. So Aeschylus wrote between 70 and 90 plays and only six or seven survive complete along with various fragments of other ones. Um, And as mentioned earlier, he claimed 13 festival victories in his life and we'll kind of jump through his complete surviving plays. The first one is the Persians that we've talked about a little bit, which was released. I think this is the release date. So 472 BCE. And it was set after the Greek victory, less than a decade earlier, over the Persians at Salamis and Xerxes' return to Persia. 
The next one is seven against Thebes, which was 467 BCE. And it was about the cursed lab. Oh man, I even did this. Okay. It's about the curse, the cursed lab is how it's pronounced. I think. Um, and the siege of Thebes. It is the third part of a trilogy that includes Laius, which is part one. Part two, I'm going to say it right because it's not Oedipus, it's Oedipus. Uh, but that was part two. And then third one, or this next play was Suppliants. And it's an unknown date, but it's after Seven Against Thebes, possibly 463 BCE. And it's about the Danides myth. So it's the first in a trilogy, which is now lost. And it's known as the Danide Trilogy, part two being the Egyptians and part three, the Danides. So part one is suppliance or suppliance, suppliance, suppliance. I think it's suppliance. Very supplius. It's supplemental. <laughs> All right. Um, and the next one is Aristea in 458 BC, which is that trilogy <clears throat> we just talked about for the Trojan War compromising Agamemnon, the Libation Bears, which is Choephori, and then the Furies, which is Eumenides. Uh, Proteus was the accompanying satire play that I was talking about that did not survive. His next one is a cool one. Um, it's called Prometheus Bound, which was in 457 BCE. And it's disputed. This play is disputed by some scholars as the work of Aeschylus. And it may have been staged by Euphorion in his father's name. So even though it was like staged by Euphorion, everybody, the scholars and everybody think that it was still Aeschylus's work that his son, like, produced for him after he passed i'm assuming or he just did it i, I don't know um but it deals with zeus's punishment of the titan prometheus who stole fire from the gods and gifted it to humanity it is the first part of a trilogy with part two being prometheus unbound and part three prometheus the fire carrier both now surviving only in fragments but that one sounds like it would have been pretty badass it's a lot of fun it sounds like yeah definitely oh yeah it's inspired a lot yeah, so those are those are the surviving plays, which I want to kind of like look into it more and see. Like, like I, I don't know, I don't know anything really about like plays, especially like back then. But like, is that stuff still like? Do people still make a play for some of his work that I can go and see? I mean, people do Shakespeare, so you never know. Like, dude, I actually think like campuses would be the ones to put on productions yeah, like this. The yeah, most, definitely, like, probably something like that. Bro, like. Damn Prometheus Bound, dude. I would go and see Prometheus Bound, and like, I mean, all of them sound like they would be super interesting, and like, not just like the whole drama and whatnot. Like, it sounds like all of them involve war and murder and mystery and all kinds of crazy stuff. Yeah, and I'm sure you could take like, I don't know, the late great Blood Zack and Snyder and do a pretty good one. <laughs> <laughs> the late, the late great. I mean, Zach he's still Snyder. alive. Is it Snyder, <laughs> like with an H, or is it just Snyder? It's, it's Snyder. Not, uh, not like Rob Schneider. I've always said Schneider too. <laughs> but yeah, he's still very much alive and still advertising Justice League. <laughs> True that. Or like, dude, James Cameron. Why he was running? He raises the bar. Guys, Jordan Jordan just took Onyx outside and he went pee and started running around. Apparently, just like peed everywhere while he was. Running. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> he's a special boy. I love to pee. <laughs> All right, so now we're going to kind of move on to the nitty-gritty good stuff with his death and what led to his, or not what led to his death, but the lead-up to his death and then kind of aftermath and everything after. But Ooh. So this was also interesting. I found two different things that said otherwise, or said 
they kind of conflicted against each other. But I found one that said he made several visits to the important Greek city of Syracuse in Sicily. Is it just Syracuse for Sicily too? It's not like Syracuse or something weird. I think it would still just be Syracuse, yeah. Yeah. So one report was that he made several visits to the important Greek city of Syracuse in Sicily at the invitation of the tyrant hero or at the tyrant Hieron, 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 and also saw that. So the other one that I saw was that he only went to Sicily twice. So one was that he made several visits, and the other one was that he only made two visits. That makes sense. You can't trust Sicilians. Right? That's fair. Right. Yeah. That's fair. <laughs> See, where's that? We need that voice in the show still. <laughs> yeah, I haven't done Italian for anyone um, yet. That was Italian that just sounded like Sicilia. Those fucking Sicilians. Oh, God. All right. So it is also thought that he traveled extensively in the region of Thrace. Again, I don't know if it's true because I saw other things conflicting saying that he only actually left Athens twice. So you can be the judge of what you want to believe, but those are that. Um, He openly expressed his aristocratic tendencies and roots, uh, which was something that the majority of the Athenians didn't appreciate. So again, I don't know if this is is true or not, but it was a source that I saw and kind of led to him leaving. But he was disappointed by the hostile reaction of his compatriots and decided to leave for Sicily and return for the last time in 458 BC. Um, It was there that he would end up dying while visiting the city of Gela in 456 or 455 BCE, uh, where he was met with one of the most ironic and bizarre deaths in history, which, like I was saying earlier, is it's pretty funny. (laughs) Let's fucking go. Interestingly enough about it, a Roman author and philosopher noted in his Naturalis Historia that Aeschylus had been staying outdoors to avoid a prophecy that he would be killed by a falling object. So keep that in mind as we go forward. What a loser. Um, again, <laughs> Fuck, got... this motherfucker pictured a high shelf and then it went this way. Yeah, dude. He's, he's like, like yeah, somebody's like, like, like going to fall on me. <laughs> You're going to die from something falling on you. Well, shit, I can't go inside anywhere. I'm going to stay outdoors. Like, yeah, this, this dude, I don't know if he ever looked up walking around outside, I guess. Like, <laughs> the sky was a different thing in ancient Greece, though. They Touché. didn't quite get it. Touche. They that didn't quite true. get it. They were still figuring it out. They're like, it's blue. Like, I honestly feel like had he been inside when spoiler occurs, he might have had a better chance at surviving because the distance might not have been as great. <laughs> Oh man! All right, so let's let's move forward because all right. So like I said, I found two. I found two specific ways that he died. One being more likely than the other, especially since it was apparently recorded. But I'm gonna let you be the judge because the the other one they I had found like is also they recorded funny. it. Like, can I find well, it on TikTok? I don't. Uh, <laughs> so I'm gonna just go ahead and say his, Aeschylus's death is the only documented case of human death directly attributed to a tortoise. Naturally. AKA turtle. Tortoise. Not counting the turtle. So with that being said, keep in mind again, philosopher noted that he, he, he had a, a prophecy that he would be killed by something falling on his head. And then now you know that it was directly attributed to a tortoise. So let that run through your mind for a couple of seconds before we move forward. It, it well, had to have been a ninja tortoise. A ninja who was this guy that prophesied this he's good like, i yeah he do it, other it just said a roman author and philosopher so I, he it, just it, looked it, at him and he was like you know what you know what you're gonna die you're from gonna something die. falling on you one day 
He was just being a You're dick. You're wacky. Ass. He was just trying to be a dick to him and like scare him, and then it came true. So that's why there's no name because the guy just up and just like that afterwards. Kid in that class, it's like you know what? I'm gonna say it. I'm gonna say it. I don't care that you broke your arm. This guy was like, dude, fuck it. You know what? You're gonna die from something falling on your head. Watch. Yep. All right. So let's move forward. Did he then. drop the tortoise on his head? So this is what I'm going to say. This is what's gonna, we're going to go with what happened, which what, the, the unlikely scenario first that I found, which is kind of funny too. But it's according to legend. This is the according to legend one. Um, Aeschylus was picked up by an eagle who thought he was a turtle, and as the eagle was flying off, he looked down, confused by Aeschylus's bald head, realizing that it was not said turtle, and dropped him to his death. Very fancy. Wow. Which a couple things in my mind run by is first is like, one, how fucking big was this goddamn eagle? Well, it is also known that people back then weren't as big as we are today. (laughs) So like this dude's the size of a fucking dwarf. (laughs) He could be the size of like a goat. You know what I mean? Which eagles pick up Might be incorrectly (laughs) translated. It was probably a pterodactyl. Yeah, Yeah, so there were dinosaurs. It was like a snake dragon. (laughs) He... He, he let his dinosaur out of the cage unsupervised, and that's what happened. Well, your dinosaur's locked up, kids. All right, so second scenario, which is the far more likely one, um, like I said, going on with the, the recorded version of the tortoise being involved, because the other one's not really a tortoise being involved. It's like an eagle, you know? Um, so Aeschylus was still the victim due to his bald head. Um, according to some historical sources, Aeschylus met his tragic death when a hungry eagle dropped a tortoise on his head so that the shell could break and the eagle could have access to the meat. So yes, the eagle apparently mistook the playwright's bald head for a rock, dropped this turtle straight down onto its head, turtle, tortoise, turtle, and I'm- killed him. So again, a question comes to mind of, how high. high was this eagle flying, and how <laughs> goddamn good of aim does this eagle have? There's a reason why they call it eagle eye. How high was the eagle thinking he was a rock? <laughs> right? I think I've cracked the case on this whole thing. I'm pretty sure this is just his friends fucking with him after he died. Like, that bald motherfucker. Like, because it comes back to the fact that he's bald so, in both stories. Right, so again... I think... Um, what? personally that this eagle was a pokemon trainer and he told his squirtle to use shell attack he's, he's just shell attack on that rock for some reason <laughs> he wanted to be but, uh, the very best. so how, again like i said legends stories however many historians suggest that the tales surrounding his death may be legendary and due to a misunderstanding of the iconography on Aeschylus's tomb so Apparently, whoever did this, like Andy said, it possibly could have been people he knew or friends or whatever that put some fucking pictures on his <laughs> tomb showing an eagle. His stupid bald head was the <laughs> cause of eagle. his death. He was such an ugly bald motherfucker. <laughs> he was bald, bald from birth, dude. I don't think this guy ever had hair. <laughs> they're, they also could that have been cold. friends of the other guy, and they're like, dude, we got to make something up that something fell on this dude's head so our boy looks like right. A- it Prodigy. could have been the other playwrights that he had beaten and like messed with G. the whole time, you know? They were like, man, this guy's finally dead. Like, yo, let's let's do this and say he died from a turtle. Yeah. All of his accomplishments <laughs> was wipe those away by him getting crushed by a turtle. <laughs> he was a wonderful writer. Let's write him a good, so, a good death. So going back to all of the other episodes of the Death Address, it's not known, but my assumption 
is that he was outside living the best of his life, reading, writing with a smile on his face, and then died. <laughs> so he did die. With a so smile he on did his face. die with a smile on his face. Is what is my assumption of this guy's life? Because I mean, he could have been paranoid as fuck, running around hiding underneath something to not get killed or like I'm in the most open area outside that I could possibly be on this hill. Nothing is going to fall on my head. And then he gets knocked out by a fucking turtle. <laughs> He's smiling. Out. Like I come up with the perfect plan and then boom, dead. <laughs> boom. There he goes. <laughs> Slow and steady wins the race. So um, after uh, a few years after his death, a bronze statue of him was erected in the theater of uh, Dionysus at Athens or yeah, Dionysus at Athens, in recognition of the special place he had in the development of tragedy. The people of Athens did make a rule permitting the works the works of Aeschylus to be performed at the dramatic festivals in competition with those of living poets. So as results, the tragedies of Aeschylus were produced often and still won many additional victories after his death. So that's that's actually pretty cool. And they're like, you suck. You can't even beat a dead guy. <laughs> yeah, for real. So a little bit of like aftermath. The bald dead guy. The bald dead guy, right? Don't forget he was bald. It was very, very well known that this guy was bald, apparently. The chrome dome. So much so that an eagle mistook him for a rock and killed him with a turtle. But anyways, a little bit of aftermath. Like, how fucking shiny were rocks back in the day, though, dude? (laughs) How shiny were bald heads back in the day? (laughs) Like, pretty shiny, I would imagine. You know what I mean? It's bald. The, the, The shinier, the more prominent you were. Um, so anyways, I mean, it did say he was rich, so well, his dad was. So just kind of going a little bit of summary, a little bit of aftermath and effects of his life. At the time that Aeschylus first began writing, the theater had only just begun to evolve in Greece, usually just involving a single actor and a chorus. Um, Aeschylus added the innovation of that second actor, allowing for greater dramatic variety and gave the chorus a less important role because, you know, the chorus is there to just kind of sing along. Um, one critic wrote, I, I don't know what critic, but apparently it's written by a critic. The addition of another actor did not double the resources of tragedy, rather it increased them 50 fold to bring two opposed or sympathetic characters face to face to exhibit the clash of principles by the clash of personalities. This is a step forward into a new world, a change so great that to call Aeschylus the very inventor of tragedy is not unreasonable. So somebody really was riding his dick back then. His bald head. I mean, if there was anybody to ride back then, I suppose it was probably him because he was winning competitions left and right. He invented like five different things and he managed to get killed by a dinosaur. (laughs) My my question is, why has this not been turned into like a movie, bro? (laughs) Seriously, though, like even like a biography on this guy would be sweet. So, um, in addition, especially if like people didn't know his story and then the end is just him just getting destroyed by this flying <laughs> fucking turtle like, like, and then it, just ends, and then it just ends. It's over. He falls to the ground and you have to have the running joke. The whole movie be everyone giving him shit for, for his bald, bald yeah. head. It's a choice. Yeah. I'm bald because I like it. Bald and beautiful. <laughs> so so back to the chorus, he reduced the size from 50 to 12, which that's pretty big. Even, I mean, just thinking about that, that'd be, that'd be a pretty significant change. Um, and then increase that dialogue in his plays. Did you wait? So you said did he, he decreased it from 50 to 12 or he increased it from 12 to 50? Reduced. So decreased the size okay. of the chorus from 50 down to 12. People were like, you fucking stole my job, you dick. <laughs> you stole <laughs> my job, bro. <laughs> well, it's superfluous. You don't need that many. 
<laughs> so um, all these changes gave greater flexibility to the to tragedy and vastly increased the dramatic possibilities of what was until then primarily a choral medium. So yeah, he was he was huge, man. He he like he like rewrote the game back then and changed it up, you know. So this is going back to what I said before. He is also sometimes credited with introducing scene decoration, which although this distinction is sometimes ascribed to Sophocles um, and more elaborate and dramatic costuming. So it's, it, it's, it's hearsay, I guess, as to which one of those two, I guess they're both kind of accredited with it. I guess nobody really knows. God, no wonder his shit won awards. Like if before that it was just some dude in a white robe, just standing there and just like <laughs> hopping back and forth, playing different characters, no props, no nothing. Like, I like yeah, he, he's, he's like sitting here and he's like, you want to know how we spice this up? We give him a costume. <laughs> I was, I'm sitting here picturing, I'm picturing then, what you said, Ethan, where it's one guy with this big chorus behind him and it's like bland. And then all of a sudden he jumps on and it's like the Hamilton play on Disney going on right now. Just like jamming out, going crazy. And everybody's like, oh my God, what is this? I'm just picturing Ben Stiller from Tropic Thunder. <laughs> yes, I, I, I've been picturing that the whole time you've been talking. What are we talking about? <laughs> So, um, in general, though, he continued to write within the very strict bounds of Greek drama. So even though he did all that crazy stuff, his plays were written in verse. No violence could be performed on stage. And it always had the works and um, and the works always had a strong moral and religious emphasis. How the hell did they do the Persians about a war with no violence on stage? Dude, I don't know, man. <laughs> I, I don't know what violence they was probably, probably just did swords, like a 15-minute monologue or something. Yeah. Dialogue between battles, <laughs> yeah. probably. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, who knows what violence was described as back then, right? Violence. The other thing is, is that the actor probably could have been like, you guys were all a part of this. You know what happened. Like, I don't need to describe <laughs> it to you. Yeah. It was a shit show. You were there. They killed your brother. Oh, God. No. <laughs> and then it throws him into a loop of like PTSD. Yeah. <laughs> Non-flashbacks. Non- <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so it seems pretty obvious what his impact was, but do you have a moral to this? Um, like I still, yeah, I was going to say, I got a little bit left that I was going to finish with. Okay. So his work indicated that he was an ardent patriot and a firm believer in the Athenian democracy. Um, and he was also a serious religious thinker. Uh, with it, in his hands with his plays the old myths became powerful expressions of crucial moral and theological problems so going back to like one of the first things i said where he like the whole god to human aspect was like one of the big things for him to try to include in all of his plays so this is interesting the inscription on aeschylus's gravestone actually makes no mention of his theatrical renown commemorating only his military achievements, his sons, Euphorion and Euean, and his nephew, Philocles. And they followed in his footsteps and became playwrights themselves. So it's really interesting that none of his his work or theatrical renown would not even be mentioned on his tomb whatsoever. Like that's insane. In yeah, because military prowess was still probably held right. above so, everything else. <laughs> So his actual Plus maybe his like work speaks for itself. Right, exactly. So this is what it actually like reads on his uh tomb. It says or on his grave, I should say. It reads Beneath this stone lies Aeschylus, son of Euphorion, the Athen the Athenian, who perished in the wheat bearing land of Gela. Of his noble prowess, the grove of Marathon can speak, and the long haired Persian knows it well. Oh, I, th- I thought you were going to throw in Vineyard in there, too. <laughs> Working back on the Vineyard. 
He pulled vines <laughs> like All a right, pro. So this is the kind of little moral, I guess, to you, Andy, that you asked. And going back to the other ones we have, um, this is kind of the last little spiel I got. But according to Cassiorius, Cassiorius, the inscription on his grave signifies the primary importance of belonging to the city of the solidarity that existed within the collective body of citizen soldiers. The poli, yeah. the, the Greek nation state. They had a lot of pride in that. Hippoli. Nationalism. So, regardless of the way he died, though, as funny and ridiculous as it was, if that's actually true, um, Aeschylus should really only be remembered for all the right reasons, such as being the man who laid the foundations for all of the dramatic arts that followed. I mean, this dude pretty much everything, man. Like, yeah. His uh, unquestionable influence throughout the centuries was best demonstrated when Senator Robert F. Kennedy quoted the Edith Hamilton translation of Aeschylus on the night of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. After Kennedy was notified that King was murdered right before a campaign stop in Indianapolis, he was the first to publicly inform the audience of King's assassination, causing members of the audience to scream and wail in disbelief. Kennedy started his historic speech by quoting the legendary Greek playwright in order to express his feelings of grief and pain. Even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until, in our own despair, against our will, comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. And that's... Jiminy. My, that's a wrap. That's my, uh, my little story I got for Aeschylus and... Well done. Yeah, I was gonna say I learned I learned a ton on nice. this one, guys. <laughs> yeah, that's what's really fun about these. You just like, got learned learn It's cool to like just like I mean like just starting off by being like, man, this guy had a ridiculous death. Like that's so funny, and then actually researching yeah. and being like, yo, this dude was the the man that changed like theater for everybody. Right. <laughs> like tragic dramedies and all the fun stuff. Thanks for listening to The Death Address. Follow our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for exclusive information on what's to come and to ask us questions. Take a look at our website at www.deathshifter.com. You can find all of the links there as well as some information about the Death Shifter team. If you're interested in supporting the show, check out our Patreon at patreon.com deathshifter. We'll see you all next time. Till then, take care of yourselves and... Don't forget to tip your death guides. Time to learn... Time to laugh, it's the death of dread.